Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to 2017 here at the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. It's been a fantastic year and a half, I think, since we started our recordings, and I've been able to interview several dozen uh, excellent storytellers, and I'm really thrilled about our guest today. He is an award-winning author of a dozen novels, including Envy the Night, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Best Mystery and Thriller. His other novels have been nominated for a slew of other top awards in mystery and suspense categories. And his um, latest book, Rise the Dark, has appeared on numerous 2016 best of lists. And I'm looking forward to checking it out. His novel, Those Who Wish Me Dead, is in production for a major motion picture at 20th Century Fox. As a former private investigator and journalist, Michael brings his interests in solving cases and telling gripping stories to his fiction writing. So, uh, Michael Corita, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I've been reading and recommending So Cold the River, and I haven't quite finished it yet, so no spoilers here today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah, it's I've probably good. forgotten you know some of the plot myself by now. So. Yeah, how many now? How many years has it been since that book actually came out? Uh, I think So Cold came out in 2011 because I had three. I had three come out in um, about 18 months. It was really a unique production schedule. To yeah, that's crazy. Publishers. And so there was a there was a lag time as I changed publishers, and then we kind of went rapid fire. So the books weren't written that much faster, but they published much quicker. And so for about a uh, you know, for about a year and a half, I felt like I was just, um, you know, like living on book tour. It was, uh, I was doing my traveling salesman routine. Hey, excellent. No, that's, that's great. Congratulations. That's, um, that's pretty stunning to be able to have, you know, substantial books and your books aren't, you know, short. I know some people sort of whip out books these days. It's like every time you turn around, there's another book they have out and, it's like, wait a minute, are you writing these or is a machine? And also, why are they 150 pages long? Yeah, exactly. So, or, or do you have a staff working on those? Yeah, no kidding, exactly. So I also noticed that um, that you've been fishing up in northern Wisconsin. That's uh, some of oh, my yeah. tromping grounds up there. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote a book. Uh, in fact, I think you mentioned it in the uh, in the intro there, but I wrote a book called Envy the Night that is set up in uh, the Willow Flowage, kind of Manaqua, Manitowas Waters area. Yeah, I've been there. I've been fishing right there, so now I need to check that one out, too. Why are you doing this to me, man? I don't have enough time <laughs> for this. 
Well, one of the things that I know is you actually published your first novel. You had it accepted, I think, while you were still in college, isn't it? I published my first two when I was still in college, yeah. Um, first book, Tonight I Said Goodbye, was accepted when I was 20, published when I was 21, and then um, I wrote the uh, second, Sorrow's Anthem, um, when I was still in school, and I think it came out right after I graduated. And um, it's kind of a funny little anecdote about that. I was told in you know May, as you get ready for graduation and commencement, I was summoned to the uh, academic you know, like guidance office, and they told me I was not eligible to graduate. What? And I'd actually taken a couple classes more than required. I want to say it was like, 118 hours and I had 124, you know, so I'm stunned by this. And I said, what I had not fulfilled was the intensive writing requirement. And at that point I had written about a thousand newspaper articles, published two novels. And I think I was published in like 10 languages by then. And I ended up, so I wasn't able to graduate in May and I had to take a correspondence class in creative writing that was, uh, taught by it was like a sort of a junior adjunct instructor um, at a satellite campus. <laughs> that was That's crazy. I, you should have been teaching yeah. the class instead. That's insane. <laughs> Man, but that, I, was, I was teaching at the journalism school like a year later, but it was kind of, it was a great moment. And they're like, you haven't fulfilled your intensive writing, writing you're requirement. Just, I'm thinking, you're just shaking that is your the head one thing I have done here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many hoops to jump through so often that make absolutely no sense. Um, I remember I got a, my master's degrees in storytelling, actually, and so I remember just these requirements that you're just, what? Why would I have to take that class, or why would I have to fill out that form? And and uh, but I love your story. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, I've published more than half of your staff, so. <laughs> Not One of the things people often will say, you know, especially to aspiring writers is, oh, you're going to get rejected if you send it out there. And, you know, I think I think you may agree with me, but the thing is people are hungry for quality. And if you tell a great story, if you really tell a gripping story that kind of grabs people's attention and keeps them emotionally engaged, it's going to sell. I mean, it's going to get out there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's the business has changed dramatically in the time that I've been around. Um, but the one thing that has not changed is the appetite for good storytelling and the enthusiasm to publish it. And that's always been there. You know, rejection is um, the first book I had published was not the first book I had submitted, you know? So right. um, even though I'm, I'm sort of viewed as this like weirdly, uh, young guy in my publishing career because I, I did start so early. Um, you know, I went through that phase of um, getting pretty close where one editor wanted it and then the managing editor and publisher took a look at it and, you know, passed on it. So I'd, I'd been through that experience, but what was really clear to me was the reasons they are passing on this book have nothing – uh, to do with any sort of of business hook or marketing hook or promotional problem, the reasons they passed on it is because it's not 
just you, you absolutely nailed it. You used the perfect phrase. It was emotional engagement. You know, so then I went back and I was actually my first published book was really a sequel. I was already writing the sequel when the first one was rejected. And I really I felt like things were clicking on the sequel and so I did what probably could be looked at as a dumb thing and I finished the sequel to a book that had already been rejected. But by then I was going back with an understanding of why St. Martin's had passed on the first one. And it, um, you know, I was, I, I always say that first book that was rejected was, it was like the equivalent of doing a 350 page interview with my characters. And (laughs) by the time I got to that second one, I knew them so well. Yeah that it was just like, okay, I can hit the ground running on this because I know their backstories now. I know who they are. I know how they talk, how they think. And because of that, the emotional engagement and my plotting sharpened up, and there's a reason, you know, that one went. So um, when I teach writing, I'm always, you know, there's nothing that scares me more for a writer um, or an aspiring writer. There's nothing that scares me more than the really talented writer who is the, um, the the perfectionist to the level that they're scared to put it out there because they fear rejection. Yeah. Because to my mind, the, the greatest teacher is the act of sitting down and taking a novel from beginning to end and then rewriting it and rewriting it again. But when you nurse that first draft along, you know, I feel like you, you, you can – sort of paralyze yourself by doing that. And if you've put, if you put everything you have in the emotional tank into the idea of I will sell my first book um, and it doesn't happen, then that can be really devastating to some people. So, you know, I'm always advocating, you know, not to, obviously not to rush it, but don't be scared of, of finishing the manuscript and getting some negative feedback. And you just you cannot be you cannot fear critique. Yeah, and um in today's publishing world, I mean you mentioned it a few minutes ago, things are changing and have changed even since you started publishing and Oh god. Now, yeah, 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 and now people will be like, Oh well, I got a rejection letter, so I'll just self publish it. Um, absolutely. And so and it's I be- think... yeah, it's become this great dearth of material that isn't ready to be published that's being published um, or at least that's being put out there. And I think it's detrimental for everybody. It's for the writers, I for the readers and everything. Couldn't agree more. And it's not, it, I, I want to be very clear here. I'm not an opponent of self publishing and there are some obvious great success stories. And there's obviously a lot of quality that has found its way to an audience um, through that route. The problem is when a writer can't land with a um, you know traditional publisher says the traditional publisher is missing my genius, missing my greatness, <laughs> and I know I can self-publish it, and I know there are people out there doing this, and it's it's accepted now. It's you know it I can make more money, I can get a higher royalty rate, whatever logic they use. The the problem is that traditional publishers by and large, are not turning down really good storytelling. Right. They are desperately hungry for it. And 
so what you want to try to, as you say, it's bad for the industry, it's bad for writers, and it's terrible for readers because in an age where, you know, we are all a couple clicks of a button on our phone away from, you know, streaming video or, you know, just looking at Facebook, the Internet, whatever, it's like there's so many reasons, so many distractions or alternatives to reading a book that when someone sits down with a book, we all want it to be really good, you know? And that's where, as a, as a writer, you need to take that burden on yourself to say, I've got to hold someone's attention against all of these forces of distraction. And the way you do that is through um, a real commitment to improving craft. And that is my only concern with self-publishing is that people say, well it wasn't accepted. So therefore I'm going to self publish as opposed to saying, therefore I will rewrite it or therefore <laughs> I'll put it in a drawer and go on to the next one, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I sometimes tell people the time to self publish is not once it's been rejected, but if it's been accepted and, Oh, that's a great point. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And then it's been accepted and you're like, you know what? You're not quite paying me enough or whatever. So I'll self publish it. Um, you know, and, and again, I'm not against self-publishing. I'm against poor storytelling. So if you're... No, that's great. You know, in yeah. fact, I'm, I'm going to steal that line from you. Yeah. Because that, that's the way to look at it. It's, if it's been accepted, but you don't think, you know, the, the advance is total crap, or you feel like there's going to be no marketing support, no publicity, then that's the time to say, okay, I've got a good piece of work here, and I can do better than the publisher, then that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, but it is not after everybody in New York or wherever you know, you're submitting has passed on it, and they will offer reasons generally why they're passing on it, and those reasons will generally have to do with craft and storytelling yep. and character and emotion. Um, so that's not the time to just say, hey, they, they missed my brilliance. It's the time to say, what can I learn? When I started, um, when I started writing back in the late '90s, um, I got a lot of rejection letters over the years, and a lot of acceptances too. But I mean, I collected some of my rejection letters, and and I mean, you wrote for magazines and newspapers and so on, so you know what it's like. You you're like, okay, well, I'll go back to it and I'll write something better instead of like, oh, I'll just send it out there to the world because um, there's a reason, like you said, that it's it's maybe not not firing on all cylinders and we need to we need to grow and nobody likes that anymore and so that's what the show is yeah, <laughs> that's what the show is here for so. the, uh, you know rewriting is really the most fun to know. okay let me take that back the most fun part of the process is in my opinion it's, it's almost always the start it's you know chapter one when you've got an idea and characters and a setting that has your heart racing a little bit. The middle of the book is always the worst, you know. That's the valley of the valley of the shadow of death, and <laughs> you're alone and have no friends, and there is no way to get it to the end. And then the end's always pretty fun. But in my experience, there is nothing that beats the uh, just the sheer um, sort of enthusiasm and energy that comes from rewriting because you see 
like, oh, I can, I have this thing that's not bad, but I can make it a lot better if I change all of these things. And, you know, I'm probably over zealous in that regard. Um, you mentioned the, the uh, script uh, in the intro, like, you know, I get, I got notes back on that. And my response is always, um, you know, the, I'll, I'll hear a point uh, like four notes that could be addressed fairly simply. And I was like, now what if I just scrapped the second act completely and built <laughs> this from scratch? And, you know, so I have to be like talked down from that. Like, no, 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 don't throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. But I really do. The reason that I default to that is um, I, I think that you always want to put out the best book you can or script or whatever your short story. And a lot of times we can get caught up as writers and um, doing what I would call uh, painting a house that has, has foundation cracks. And you might be able to disguise that a little bit, but you are never going to be able to fix the foundation cracks with paint. Like you've got to be willing yeah. to dig back in there. And that's the, that's the fun part to me. It's, um, it, it's knowing that you've, you've made it into a product that was, you know, more than you imagined it could be at the start. Now, I tend to think that a lot of writers are typically naturally either wordsmiths or storytellers, so that some people I'll read their work, I'll be like, man, every word here matters. It's so significant. And, uh, but maybe the story doesn't really go anywhere. Other people, you read it and you're just it's a gripping story, but they need to work on their you know, word choice. And you know, for, from my experience, your books are really, you have a good balance of the two, of wordsmithing, but plus also crafting and shaping a story. Um, what, what would you say when I... Uh, would you say that one of those takes more work for you than the other, either shaping the sentences and the words and so on, or the shape of the story itself? Which do you tend to work more on, or which which comes more naturally for you? And that is a great question. Um, that is, that's a great question, and um, I tend to tend to agree with you in general. The which should I work harder on? I guess I would I, let me phrase it this way. The words matter more to me in um, particularly in first draft. And you know, that's when this makes sense. L language is like the sort of, you know, gasoline on the fire for me with a book. And when I begin to, when the actual sentences and the dialogue and, and just the flow of those words begins to really catch and, and the voice of the story and the voice of the characters is there then I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm good to, to ride with this. And the plot, I really have, um, I cannot outline to save my life. So I know like I've kind of come to, to peace almost with the knowledge that the, the story or plot, if you will, of my book is going to be, a train wreck in first draft, but hopefully I've got a pretty good, um, I've, I actually, I should have a really good handle on the, um, the language and the characters and just what I would call the emotional underpinning 
of the story. And so it's in rewrites that I can then sort of um, step back and look at the, really look at the macro plot issues. And I almost consider my first draft an outline when it comes to story. Right. And I would say the later rewrites are more structured toward um, the, the bigger issues. I think we uh, we have a sort of a similar approach. Like I don't outline either. I have no idea how to do that or plot out a book. And so on the show, we often have people who are outliners, and they'll give their perspective on you know how their approach works. Or other people who I call it organic writing, really. And it's not seat of the pants because you're writing. You understand story. You understand what n- needs to happen to make a story work, but you're organically building it as you write instead of trying to lay it out beforehand. Um, but some people get, get frightened by that. They think, well, what if I don't know what to write? Or what if I write myself into a corner? Or what if I go down a rabbit trail? Um, when you write, how do you kind of approach those aspects of what some people would call the drawback maybe to organic writing? Yeah, I mean, that's it's such an individual process. And um, I think you need to just figure out what you are. You know, I wouldn't discourage outlining i i would say out of i've met a lot of of writers and really good writers over the years and it seems to me that the majority um do not outline they are organic writers as you say but there are are certainly some excellent i mean incredible writers who do work that way so you need to figure out what you are first of all and then if if you can't outline, if you sort of are wandering into the darkness with your characters, then you need to let the characters run. And the best moments of the book, when you talk about, you know, going down the rabbit hole, I think the best moments of the the story come when the character surprises you. You know, I'm, this will sound, it puts some people off because they think, Oh, that sounds too, uh, you know, kind of, artsy fartsy you're talking about the muse or something that they don't want to hear but i am firmly of the belief that the subconscious gets the story better than my conscious mind and i can tell you the moments where i feel like it is going wrong is when i'm very aware that i am the author and i am creating and pushing the characters when i start playing chess with the narrative i know that it's a mess when the characters surprise me that's when I say, oh, okay, I didn't even realize this thing was sitting here, but it is. And yeah, being responsive I, yeah, is so huge to the story. Absolutely. You've got to be nimble. Yeah. You've got to be able to respond. And then the other thing is you, you have to fall in love with the delete key because you are going to, if you approach writing the way you and I do, and you do not have that 27-page outline, you don't have the roadmap, then you are inevitably going to make mistakes and make wrong turns. And so you just, you have to learn that the delete key is your best friend and that it is, I mean, it all, it's very painful to cut two weeks or two months of work, but it, it is necessary. Um, at least in, in my experience, it's very necessary to getting, you know, to um, the eventual, desired outcome yeah i agree and 
when you were talking a few minutes ago about characters, one of the ways I put it to people is, the question is not what would this character do, but what would this character do if I got out of the way? And once you step out of the way and you allow the characters to, you know, what you said, some people are like, what? How does the character, you're the one writing it. But, but really it is stepping back and letting the character make choices that he or she would make. And you know, some people ask me, like, how do you write from a serial killer's perspective or a terrorist or a teenage girl? And, I mean, the answer is always the same. I don't ask myself, what I would do, I ask, what would this character naturally do? And then I give them free reign. And, Absolutely. And yeah. that, that is the job. You know, the, the, the job of the storyteller is to be able to transport the reader into someone else's skin and to show the world through someone else's eyes. And if you can't do that as a writer, then you know, frankly, you're, you're in the wrong, wrong line of work because the reader is not you, okay? So they're always going to have a different set of eyes. So what your responsibility is, is to share that. You really need to learn how to share the footing of the reader as much as possible. And to me, that means experiencing the story as the character. And it's a really fun and cool thing. I, mean, I don't know if you have this experience, but when you begin to, you, you, you have days where you almost feel like you're transcribing more than creating. It's like you're just listening, you know, you're listening yeah. to the, the back yeah. and forth of the dialogue and you're seeing, you're sitting there at your desk in, you know, wherever your desk is sitting in, you know, my hometown's Bloomington, Indiana. So if I'm sitting in Indiana or Florida, but I'm writing about Montana, I'm seeing those mountains, and yeah. that's where I am. That's the most fun you can possibly have as a writer to me. I mean, that, that's when, when you know it's working. Well, let me, um, let me point out one of the things that I really like about your writing is the descriptions. Um, I feel like a lot of writers um, sort of stumble in the area of descriptions. And just the other day when I was reading through your novel, I came to a paragraph. I'm just going to read it just so that the listeners here can sort of hear what I'm talking about. But um, it's a description of a boxcar, and it says, The boxcar was heavy with trapped heat and the air smelling of rust. The car seemed far larger on the inside than on the outside, the opposite and lost in darkness. The rippled steel walls seemed to drink in the light, holding it all to the thin shaft in the in the center. So... It's almost uh, poetic, and one of the things that r really resonates with me is so many people introduce details just to describe stuff, and I don't think that's the goal of details. I think the goal of details and descriptions is to evoke, and that's what your description here does. It evokes um, emotion and imagery that underlies uh, what's happening in that scene, and I feel like that's what you do throughout the book. I appreciate that. I, I couldn't agree more with that that idea of evoking. And, and again, we're going to um, keep coming back to this idea of of emotion. And so it's not just what does what does the place look like? You know, whether it's a, a boxcar or a mountain vista, 
it's not just what does it look like, but it is how does the character feel encountering this place. Yes. Um, and that includes ob- the obvious thing, like, you know, incorporate other sentences. But you need to, to think of imagery, and this is where your, uh, your great point earlier about language, language in every word counts, really matters because it's really in the words themselves. You know, it's, it's, it's in the verbs it's in the actual language and the, the rhythm, the cadence of the language that you can create and evoke the most emotional connection. And I think that the, there's a time for what I, I call the engineering or architectural um, approach to description. But that time is only when the reader is probably going to be unfamiliar with something. You know, so then you yeah. get, you get technical, so they can get a firm grasp of it. Because the minute you lose clarity, you're in big trouble. So you have to hold clarity. But then when you have something, to go with the example you just read, something like a boxcar, we immediately have an image of that. We know what it looks like, right? So I don't need to tell you um, anything about the general dimensions of how a boxcar looks, works, anything else. What I need to tell you is the way it looks, feels, smells to my character in that moment. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so many people, I feel like, drop the ball in that moment. And um, something that I noticed uh, when I was working on my book, uh, a book called Troubleshooting Your Novel, is people tend to lose the mood um, through adjectives, and um, verbs, not so much nouns. Nouns tend to be more neutral. In other words, boxcar right. could be a neutral thing, could be a positive thing, a negative. But um, when it's heavy with trapped heat, when the air smells of rust, and um, the opposite end is lost in the darkness, the rippled steel walls uh, drink in the light. So drinking in the light and rippled steel, all of those adjectives and verbs then create the mood of that scene, the atmosphere. Um, And I think a lot of people will build up a scene with description or or whatever they use, and suddenly they'll insert one word, uh, often verb or adjective, that completely shatters the entire atmosphere. That I don't know if they're trying to be clever or something. They'll just insert, you know, some strange verb that they've heard or something like that. And so I think one of the, you know, one of the aspects of really of building an atmospheric story, and that's what I would say this book specifically is, is an atmospheric story, um, is is keeping that mood, you know, through the character's eyes, like what you were saying, and also not shattering it by poor word choice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people, um, I would say there's, we, we have a little bit of a, um, creative writer's disease where they are, and I say they, I mean, I'm including myself in this, like everybody at the start and as you develop, we are prone to roll our eyes at um, the the sort of advice that goes back to say strunk and white, you know, omit needless words, limit adjectives and adverbs. And it seems like, oh, that's for, you know, the journalist, the newspaper reporter. But in reality, it couldn't apply more to the novelist or the short story writer because those are the words, just just as you said, that 
they're either going to bring magic and emotion to the scene or they're going to kill the mood. They're going to make the reader aware of the writer, which is disaster, or you're just going to bog it down with flowery language to the point that now you have the reader skimming. Um, so it is, you need to, you know, it's the, every word counts and make sure you have the right ones. Um, I agree with the adjectives and I would say I'm even more concerned with verbs. You know, the, yeah. the right verb is going to make a dramatic difference in a sentence, but you also need to, or I need to, um, I really need to guard against doing that too often. You know, you don't want to, the, 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 what I would call the unusual verb or the unexpected verb, that is extremely effective when it is used um, sparingly. It's the law of diminishing returns. If every third sentence you write has sort of an alternative or aggressive or unexpected verb, then it's just going to come across as trying too hard and overwriting. But if you're hitting, you know, one a chapter, something like that, then then it's really good. And then that's, you know, you're, you're drawing the reader in. And I think you're also doing the the job of the writer, you know, story is first. Character and emotion, those need to be the paramount things. But one thing I sort of worry about is that we we do not lose our um, obsession with language, with words, with everything that's been given, you know, to us. Because w- what can a writer do that a, um, a novelist or, or a short story writer do that a um, movie or TV show or, you know, internet video cannot do for you. And the weapon we have is language. So, you know, you better obsess over that. That's, um, I, I, that's something that people like writers should have obsess over every word. <laughs> I like a sign up in their office and I have one in my office that says rage against mediocrity. And it's the same idea as like, yes, obsess over that word, make sure that it's right. And, and this is one area where I think sometimes I'll work with editors and they'll, they'll say something like, you know, about that. I'm like, no, this word matters because there are a million reasons why it matters, but we can't, you can't tinker with something and not, not affect through the ripple effect that everything in that, you know, maybe paragraph or page or chapter like that. Um, yeah, you should have a defense for every word, you know, yeah. because they all count. To quote my old friend, Mr. Strong, yet again, but um, every word does count. And if you, if you can't defend it, then, you know, that's when you get out your red Probably pen and say, great, cut. Be there. Yeah, cut it. Now, your books kind of span different genres. Um, some people have labeled some as mystery, even horror, suspense, thriller. Um, kind of, first of all, well, where do you see your writing? Do you shoot for a specific genre? And then, also I was curious if you um, have any... I guess, any idea on how do we draw the lines between those genres? So do I'll, you I'll answer of, those yeah, sort of in yeah. reverse order. Um, to me, the lines between genres are, um, that's, 
that's more from the business side. That's the marketing side. Yeah. You know, try and tell people what kind of book or story this is. Um, the writer's job is to consider it a novel period. And the, you know, I would say that everything I write, I look at that as falling sort of under a, a big tent of being suspense. And, and I mean that just most literally by the emotion of suspense. That's what I want to bring to the reader. Um, I know that reviewers and booksellers and, and readers would look at the, I've done three books that have supernatural elements and then, you know, nine without, and some readers are really turned off by the supernatural. Some readers are really disappointed when I don't have it in there. Um, and then there are those, you know, beautiful, <laughs> most appreciated readers who are like, yeah, I can, I'll go wherever you take me as long as it's a story well told. Right. And um, I understand that I, under, I understand that some readers really do have uh, a more narrow preference, whether it's they only like historical fiction or they only like nonfiction or they only like procedural mysteries. Um, but that is for me in, in, in my personal approach to craft, that is writing toward the market, writing, you know, toward the, the business as opposed to writing toward the story. And so I've always, I really have let the, sort of the setting and the characters dictate that. And it's been interesting. You know, I, I had to uh, to get my first supernatural story, which is the one you're reading, so-called The River out there, um, that I had to switch publishers. I'd done five books with St. Martin's, and they had all been, um, they'd, there had been four uh, detective novels in the series and then a standalone crime novel. And I wanted to write this, you know, sort of big atmospheric, book that to me is just, you know, it's sort of a classic ghost story. And they were from a, from a marketing perspective, very concerned about that. Um, and so, you know, I sort of stuck to the book and I ended up with, uh, with little Brown and with an editor named Michael Peach, which was the best thing that ever happened in my career. You know, Michael is, he's edited everyone from, um, you know, Michael Connolly to David Foster Wallace to Donna Tartt. And the chance to work with him for um, as long as I did was just just phenomenal. But that would not have happened, and it, and it widened my audience too. You know, I, I had more success over there um, without question. But that wouldn't have happened if I had said, "Okay, I'm going. I'm going to write for the the marketing director, yeah. or I'm going to write for the publicist." You know, you write for the reader, and I think ultimately you write for um, a reader of one. You need to be writing in a weird way. You need to write selfishly, if that makes sense. Like if you're not writing the story you want to tell most, the reader is going to smell that out so quickly. You know, if, if your heart is not in it, man, the reader is going to, the reader is so much more savvy and tuned in than a lot of us give them credit for. Like they, they know when your heart's in the story. I completely agree, and there are you know some stories 
truthfully, you know, I don't usually tell people this, but a lot of the novels I start, I don't even finish. I just can't, can't, yeah. you know, get, get into them, or I just, eventually the writing just, it doesn't work, or I can tell that it's not genuine, and um, and so when I find an author that really uh, understands story and writing and the craft of words, man, I just love it, and um, and it's so refreshing to see that and to find that. Um, so when when you're writing, I think of different forces kind of pressing in upon a story. So, for example, believability, escalation, um, causality, in which everything that happens is caused by the thing that precedes it, so that it's a it's all locked together. It isn't random events occurring. So. So these type of things kind of help to shape a, a, a story. What's in your mind as you're working on your story? Is it, I want to make this, um, I have to keep this believable, or I have to build the tension at this moment? Or does it just fluctuate as you build the story and as you work on it, editing it? Yeah, it, it fluctuates, and I would say uh, draft to draft. You know, I'll have, a, I'll have a slightly different focus or a different lens, you know, maybe right, by... Right. The third rewrite, I'm thinking um, of, of just uh, something like you said, like uh, these these storylines are separate, and is there a way to you know either literally intertwine them or at least thematically? Because you know, I, or, or or should one float out on its own for a while? Um, and then other times I'll be you know doing a draft with a, a focus just on the relationship between two characters maybe. So that's where it tends to, um, to fluctuate the most. I would say in first draft, and as a general general rule, I've got, I'm one of those uh, people who I love little like slogans and reminders. So my office is just papered with quotes about writing and about story. And, you know, there, there are some very simple ones that I go back to um, over and over and over again. And I think the, the one thing that can really save you from um, a lot of wasted time and making a lot of mistakes is just asking yourself, I sort of like think of it as a, a pulse test for the narrative, asking yourself what the character wants in this scene. Does the audience understand what they want? And if not, you better have a reason for that. You know, I mean, you yeah. better have a reason if, if you're keeping that back. And then the, the thing that I want to ask after every chapter, every scene, is I want to ask two questions. One is, what is my character feeling in this scene? And then the second one is, what is my reader feeling in this scene? Um, some, a lot of times those are going to sync up, but not always. They, well, really, they shouldn't always. Right. But if, if those seem murky at all, if you don't, if you don't really believe that those are being answered, then you have come off the rails, and you need to go back on that, because the entire, the entire thing hangs on the success or failure of the story, hangs on the writer's ability to keep the reader emotionally engaged, and those questions um, are all, if you think about them, they're all emotion-based questions. Now, um, if readers haven't uh, haven't read any of your books, um, 
Would you say, what, what, where would you suggest that they start? I know when, with my books, people are always like, well, what's the first one in your series? Or what's the first one you wrote? I'm like, well, I wrote that 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, yeah. It's, it's so funny. <laughs> and you know, I'm like, no, read my newest. But I want to start at the beginning. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, I, I mean, all I feel, it's it's a sickness, but I, you know, I hope it leads to better work. But even uh, as you're talking about, so-called the river and you're uh, having a positive reading experience which obviously I'm thrilled to hear that but I hear that you, that that book comes out and I'm like oh god that, that one was terrible because that was five years ago you know it's like there's always this sense of which I think is very good for, for the writer honestly that you should be worried about the next project so when someone asks me where should I start I always want to say, read the book I haven't published yet. <laughs> like, read the one I'm working on, because yeah. this time I'll finally get it right. Yeah, exactly. But, um, I guess I would say I, I'm, there are three that I probably would, would point to. Um, they're all standalones that I, I think are indicative of the sort of storytelling I, I prefer, which is um, The Cypress House and um, a book called The Prophet, and a book called Those Who Wish Me Dead. Those are usually the ones I start people on. Um, so called The River, it's interesting. I I would always ask, like, are you willing to, do you enjoy, you know, supernatural stuff at all? Because if it's an immediate turn off to you, then, you know, don't don't grab that one. And um, there's some, it's always funny to, uh, you know, to, to see comments to hear comments from readers as I after that book came out I was on you know on tour for that and then the next one and people would come up and say like well I was I loved your first five books but then I was really disappointed to find out that there was you know the supernatural stuff and so-called the river I liked it except for that and all I can think is like, did did you not read the dust jacket at all? <laughs> I'm not hiding the fact that it's a ghost story. Right. You know, it's like, it's right there. It's all over it. But that's the, the one reason I sort of hold back on recommending the supernatural stories to people, even though I love them, is um, that seems to be a real dividing line for some readers. They're yeah. either all in or all out on it. Well, we want to... I'm not that way at all. You know, I, yeah. I love... To me, it's a story. It's... Uh, you know, tell it well, and I'm I'm right there with you. I'm the same way. You know, I write suspense and thrillers and so on, and some fantasy, um, a little bit touching on paranormal. But but I read everything as long as it grips me. I don't care if it's supernatural. I've read literary, you know, not romance as much. But you know, if something is just great storytelling, draws me in. That's that's what matters most. And I think that this whole idea of I love what you said, too, about the genres. It's like, that's for marketers to figure out. I'm just going to tell a great story. I think that, when you look at the bestsellers over the last five years, they're pretty hard to categorize into one genre. It's like people say, oh, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to tell a great story, and it's up to these other people to figure out whatever you want to call it, but this is going to be a gripping story and a great ride for readers. So yeah, we definitely I, I, want I our readers to check out to check out your books. And um, would you say... Uh, like, is the best place to f- sort of catch catch up with you on your website or Facebook or Twitter, um, maybe to find out where you're going to be signing or if you're on tour again? 
Yeah, the website is probably the best. I'm I'm terrible at social media, um, so I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, um, but I don't. I'm, I'm not one of the uh, like interactive uh, types yeah. out there. But um, the um, the Facebook page will have current information, and uh, but the website's always you know letting people know what I'm what I'm up to. And which site is that? Uh, just michaelcarita.com. And if people don't know how to spell your last name, it's K-O-R-T-Y-A. Oh, yeah, that's, I've got the worst word of mouth name ever. Yeah, K-O-R-T-A. <laughs> yeah, .com. And um, so for information about my writing uh, retreats, please check uh, novelwritingintensive.com. And um, for anybody interested in other broadcasts, you can click to thestoryblender.com. And, Michael... It's been great having you, man. I um, I love your insights. I love your passion for excellence, and that's that's really what it's all about. I think is telling stories that matter, um, grabbing people, and um, giving them an emotionally satisfying experience. So, I appreciate you doing yeah, that. Thank you so much. I I love talking craft with someone who cares about it. So this has been this has been a real pleasure. And so I always like to close up by saying to our readers and listeners, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Excellent. Thanks. We'll see you next time.